Good morning, everyone. It's nice to have the opportunity to lead your worship again. And we're going to begin worship as we hear words from Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. He has his throne in heaven. He watches people everywhere and knows what they are doing. He examines the good and the wicked alike. Let's all pray. Father, we come to you now in silence, yet shouting for joy. We come in silence overawed at the thought of your love for us, your rule over time and space. Yet you love us so much that you gave your only Son to suffer and to die for us. To think that you love us like that takes our breath away. We're struck dumb. And there's nothing we can say. And yet we cannot stay silent when we think of your love for us. For you gave us a new birth into a living hope when you brought Jesus back from death. So that we could make a new start in life. Free from the guilt and shame of the past. Confident that nothing in death or life can separate us from your love. To think that you love us like that makes us long to break our silence, to shout for joy and praise. And so, Father, we ask you, accept our worship and praise, both silent and spoken, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And hear us now as we pray together, using the words the Master taught us, our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the Old Testament, from Ecclesiastes 8. Now that's on page 660 of the Pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 to 14. Only the wise know what things really mean. Wisdom makes them smile and makes their frowns disappear. Do what the king says, and don't make any rash promises to God. The king can do anything he likes, so depart from his presence. Don't stay in such a dangerous place. The king acts with authority, and no one can challenge what he does. As long as you obey his commands, you are safe, and a wise person knows how and when to do it. There is a right time and a right way to do everything, but we know so little. None of us knows what is going to happen, and there is no one to tell us. No one can keep from dying or put off the day of death. That is a battle we cannot escape. We cannot cheat our way out. I I saw this 
when I thought about the things that are done in this world, a world where some people have power and others have to suffer under them. Yes, I have seen the wicked buried and in their graves, but on the way back from the cemetery, people praised them in the very city where they did their evil. It is useless. Why do people commit crimes so readily? Because crime is not punished quickly enough. A sinner may commit a hundred crimes and still live. Oh yes, I know what they say. If you obey God, everything will be all right. But it will not go well for the wicked. Their life is like a shadow and they will die young because they do not obey God. But this is nonsense. Look at what happens in the world. Sometimes the righteous get the punishment of the wicked and the wicked get the reward of the righteous. I see it is useless. God bless this reading and aid us in our understanding of its words. And now in our service we come to our prayers of supplication and intercession. Let's pray together, shall we? We have set our hope on you, living God, as those who set course for home from, a distant, from distant places. But we need your help if we are to keep on course. We need fresh sight of you on which to check our bearings. We pray that this service might be a checkpoint for us all. Show us where we are and show us where we should be. For you are near as well as far, accompanying as well as beckoning, making this a meeting place between our minds and your mind, so that we may see the controlling interest in human affairs is yours. Living God, you declare yourself to be the saviour of all men. You know in full what we only know in part, how much men need a saviour. If you do not rescue us from our egotism and complacency, who will? If you don't purify our motives and shake us out of the sentimentality of our usual hopes and fears, who will? May your declared purpose get through to the church and to the world today, we ask, Heavenly Father. Living God, you declare yourself to be saviour above all of believers. In every country in the world, there are men and women who believe that your word in Jesus Christ holds promise not only for this life, but for the life to come. Save all your believers from spiritual arrogance. Save them equally from dismay at the forces they are up against. Show them how to have divided opinions without having divided loyalties. May your declared purpose get through the church today, Heavenly Father. 
Father, we know there are many whose lives are crippled and inhibited by illness and ignorance, bitterness and grief, exploitation and envy, and by physical and mental handicap. We know and love some of these people. You know and love them all. Help us to be your own hands, so that in everything that so that everything that happens may come to serve the purpose of your love and your design for humanity may be fulfilled in all its beauty. For we ask these in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Our text this morning is from chapter 11, verse 9. I realized another thing. That in this world, fast runners don't always win the race. And the brave don't always win the battle. Now when you read that, you think, well, there must be something there somewhere. And you scratch your head and gradually the waste paper basket at the side of your desk fills up. Until you kind of get a little bit of clearance. Ecclesiastes says the New Bible Commentary. Ecclesiastes is in many respects an enigmatic book. Well, we can all agree there. Disjointed in construction, obscure in vocabulary, and often cryptic in style, it baffles the understanding of the reader. And I agree with that completely. So I put this heavy Bible commentary down, and I looked at the authorized version of the Bible, and having found a text there, I noticed it's a longer text in the authorized version. There it reads this. I returned and saw under the sun that the race was not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. So let's begin at the beginning. What does it mean, I returned? This man hadn't told us anywhere what he'd been doing or why he hadn't been at home. So why does he tell us he's come back again? I'm going to suggest to you that he means there had been a time when he had sat at home with a hot and angry heart. He thought it a great shame that some people should naturally be so fast and that others should be endued with bravery. What's the use of striving for a prize when some of the athletes are so unfairly handicapped. It was a cruel world, unbalanced and unjust, and his heart had been rebelling against the laws of the world. And so he took himself out into the world's highways. He moved up and down among the haunts of men. He stopped theorizing and set himself to actually to watch what was going on in the world around him. And then with a mind furnished with all these experiences that he had gathered and gleaned, he went back home and he sat down to meditate upon it. And I returned and saw that under the sun, and things were a different complexion now, Men might be fleet of foot, but they don't always win. And armies might be strong, 
but they don't always triumph. And he deduces from that that there are incalculable, 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 I knew I would get it right, incalculable powers abroad, balancing, adjusting, compensating, so that turn where one would in human affairs, there were unexpected and dramatic issues. Now, if you like, you can call that chance. But if you may take it from the other side and call it God. But whatever you call it, the fact remains that experience shows us that that rearranging and revising power is abroad in human life. And so says the preacher, I came home again, wiser, humbler, a happier man, for I'd seen that the race was not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. I want to try and illustrate this truth and show the moral values of it. And in the first place, do as the writer did. Let me invite you to look with your own eyes on your own environment. The best way into this part of the sermon is for me to say that as a student, I bought lots and lots of second-hand books, and I read most of them. And in the books that were written by old Scottish divines, I kept coming across a reference to Dr. John Brown. I suppose our grandparents might well have had this book in their homes because everybody brackets this book with Dr. John Brown. It was called Rab and His Friends. And one of the words which was often on the pen of Dr. John Brown was the word unexpectedness. As we look at men who we've known since we were boys and whose life we've kept in touch with through the years, there are few of us who would be unable to detect the unexpected element. Now in our school days, Some lads seemed to be able to master anything that came their way. Latin or Greek, rugby and cricket. So clever, sang in the choirs, did solos at concerts, could turn their hands to anything. But the rest of us common mortals struggled and sweated over. But the years have passed now, with all their discipline and all their chastening. And that lad, who I so admired, has disappointed not only his parents' hopes, but those who knew and admired him. And the paradox of that is that there's some guys who at school couldn't master arithmetic, never mind calculus. And today, they're leaders in industry. I'm not investigating the cause of failure or of success. It could have been instability or a secret sin or a lack of courage or temperance. But whatever it is like the preacher when we begin to think that way, we're taught by the years and by what our eyes have witnessed that we feel how true it is of our own circle, that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. And once again, if we widen our view a little, 
we can trace this text's truth through all sorts of achievement. You've only to think of the books by which we live, or or those lives of thought and action which are part of our richest heritage, to be face to face again with this incalculable element which lies in the divine method of surprise. You would surely expect the best work to be done by those who the possess as we think, who possess as we think, every advantage. Now if someone's going to write a great book or a great poem, we would expect them to have access to libraries, to be blessed with health and strength. So to imagine, as the preacher did, then we face facts and return, taught by our survey that there's a power abroad which travels counter to our expectations. Think of Homer. He was blind. Think of Epictetus. He was a slave. Turn to your Bible and you find Amos was a herdsman and the Apostle John was a fisherman. Think of John Bunyan, a tinker and, um, and imprisoned. Remember Rabbi Burns with his hand on the plough. And tell me, where is the leisure there? And where are the libraries? And where is the atmosphere of culture these? There's a hand at work that we cannot stay. It has exalted those of low degree. Go into the poet's corner in Westminster Abbey. Does that corner speak of riches? Here's a company, as a fellow poet once talked to them all, a company, he said, of glorious paupers. What about learning? Very few of them had little Latin, and none of them had any Greek. What about strength? Many of them dead by 40. It speaks of the struggle against tremendous odds. Poverty, suffering, despair. Yet those who've won their triumph on the field and carried off the laurel in the race. And so I returned as every man returned, feeling how inscrutable is providence. And how often those who have everything have nothing. And those who seem to have nothing win the crown. I realized in this world Fast runners don't always win the race. And the brave do not always win the battle. Now let's take this theorem and apply it to that universal search, the search for happiness. It's not those who have the most to make them happy who always prove themselves to be happy people. There are people of whom we instinctively say, well, they should be happy. He's everything this world can offer, health and money and friends and a sweet home and not a care or worry in the world. And yet sometimes, if you're introduced to these people and can spend a little time in their company, they're not nearly as happy as we once imagined them to be. They are men and women who are burdened and battling with a thousand ills. And we have more of the song and the laughter 
than they do. I wonder, of all the homes in the old Roman city of Philippi, were any such men as happy as Paul and Silas? Philippi, you know, was a noble, a luxurious city, rich in all the arts that ministered to pleasure. Yet if you wanted to find the gladdest heart in Philippi, you had to leave the palaces and the proud city squares and get yourself down to a dungeon where beaten and bruised and in the stocks at midnight, two prisoners were so happy they sang their praise to God. We talk about the eager race for riches, but at the heart of it, it's really a race for happiness. We speak of the grim battle to succeed, and it's really the battle to be happy. And if one thing is certain, one thing is certain when we return again from looking in the streets and into the eyes of men and women that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle always to the strong. And nowhere is this more conspicuously true than the one we call our master, Jesus Christ, called often the man of sorrows. I want to take, do a bold, I think bold anyway, compare the man of sorrows with the emperor who was reigning while Jesus was exercising his ministry. Tiberius was the most powerful of living men. He was the ruler of all that was fairest in the world. There was no control on his power, no limit to his wealth, no check or barrier on any of his pleasures. On one of the most enchanting spots of earth, he chose to build his home on a lovely island with a delicious climate. Does not the thought of all that conjure up happiness? Would you be happy if all that were yours? Yet Pliny, the poet, who ought to know something of the matter called Tiberius, Tricissimus ut constat hominum, confessedly the gloomiest of men. And we're comparing him with Jesus, who often had nowhere to lay his head, who was despised and rejected and jeered at. And yet when we listen again to his words, he speaks of my joy and my peace that the world cannot take away. Who, re who wins the race for happiness and peace? It's not the mighty. It's not the swift. It's not the strong. Was it the exalted Caesar or the rejected Christ? The text tells you the winner. And then too, this text applies to spiritual life. Not many wise, not many mighty are called, but God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound those who are mighty and those who are strong in battle. Think of the Pharisees, those guardians of the past, those men who made their religion a profession, trained in the law, looking for a Messiah. Will they not be the first to press into the kingdom? Listen to Jesus. Woe unto you, Pharisees and scribes, swifts though you seem, the race is not for you, 
It's for weeping harlots like the Magdalene and penitent and adoring publicans like Matthew. I know of no sphere in human life where the element of unexpectedness plays such a large part as in the sphere of the spiritual and in the movements and changing moods of the soul. I read the memoirs of an old minister dead long since who trained in Scotland in the time of that great evangelist, Henry Drummond. Some of the fellow student ministers had every advantage. They came from wealthy, pious, God-fearing homes. And yet, while Drummond was sweeping folk with the help of the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God, those people went their way uninfluenced by God's grace, which was working all around them. But there were others who came to the light and who walked in the light from that day forward. And I'm told that these were the last men you would have looked for, deciding for Christ and pledging their lives to him. There's not a minister at that age who didn't tell the same story. Not a mission worker who wouldn't echo it. Some from whom the brightest and best things were hoped for prove intractable. And some who seemed as hard as granite, joyfully yielding. So we return from service for the Lord with a larger experience of how the battle goes, taught by the the trail of trophy and of failure the race of the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong now i'm going to take just a moment or two to suggest some of the moral value of this truth the first is this i think it's a mighty force to keep us from being discouraged thank god we can all of us in our weakness say I will still win my crown. You don't need to be swift or clever or remarkable, for the race is not to the swift. You're not gifted with unusual strength, but the battle's not to the strong. You must understand the teaching of this text insists on giving a chance to mediocre people, to commonplace and undistinguished thousands, when when above all might and brilliance, There is a power that has a way of working to unexpected ends. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. Don't sigh and say, but only had the gift of so-and-so. A little gift in the hand of God may work for mightier matters than you think. So don't, it's to keep us from being discouraged. And it's to wean us away from all pride And keep us watchful and humble and dependent. Is there anyone here of swift, subtle intellect? Remember, brother, the race is not always to the swift. I put no premium on mediocrity. I try to honor it wherever it's found. At the same time, I confess I love to meet bright and brilliant men. I like to see strength in any form. But if you're swift, don't despise the slow. And if you're strong, don't condemn the weak. It's a strange world, rich in dramatic 
touches. But the battle is not always to the strong. And lastly, if we grasp the truth of this sentence from Ecclesiastes, what we're doing is clearing the ground, clearing the ground for God and giving him room to work. If the strongest were sure of victory in every battle, there would be little room for the divine. Whose is the hand that in the race of life often strengthens the faint-hearted and encourages those who would like to stop trying? Well, let the poet tell us, there's a divinity that shapes our end. Rough hewn, how rough hew them, how we will. And so we return. Those who were once blind with eyes that have been opened to God. And we know just because he reigns. The race will not always be to the swift, or the battle to the strong. Amen. May God bless his word.